Good morning, church. It's fun to be with you when the sun is shining. Come on, somebody. It's exciting to be out there. I feel strong. I'm like Superman getting my power from the, uh, from the yellow sun. And so uh, really enjoying that happening. Uh, we've been in a series about the life of Jesus. And the, the kind of the, the conversation we've been having is that ju- this journey that Jesus is on, this last uh, bit of time of his ministry heading towards the cross and ultimately culminating in Easter. And there are these interactions and these important conversations that Jesus has along the journey that help uh, guide and shape and direct the way we think about life here on earth because it changes everything what Jesus accomplished uh, at the cross. And and so the story and the narrative kind of continues and we've been having uh, this conversation about uh, these elements and the moments of Jesus's life leading towards Easter. And he's about to have a conversation today about what it means to really be great. And I don't know about you, uh, but I've been in a lot of debates and conversations about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? That's a conversation we like to have. And kind of depending on the season of life you're in, you define greatness different ways. When, uh, When you're a kid, your parents are the greatest. When you're a teenager, they're the worst. And then when you have kids, they're the greatest again. Come on, you know, we've been there. Maybe it's a coach when you think of who's been the greatest in your life. Sometimes you look around and you're like, the person at the popular table who gets to talk the most, they're the greatest. But most of the conversations about greatness that we end up having revolve, at least in my life, around the greatest of all time conversations, the GOAT. And sometimes we have conversations about that. And, and, and the expression goat just means the greatest of all time. And I get into debates about this all the time because I come from a place where we had good athletes and good sports teams. And most of you grew up and never experienced championships until your adulthood. But I experienced them my whole life. And since I experienced them my whole life, it was common to have conversations about who was the greatest because we were involved in those conversations. But we get into debates about that all the time. I can tell you, the first time I thought someone was the greatest, it was a guy named Roberto Clemente. Come on, somebody. He died in 1972, and so I wasn't uh, alive at that point. That dates me a little bit. But one of the first uh, biography books I read was called The Pride of Puerto Rico. Come on now. And it was about Roberto Clemente. And I read about his life, and I read about his struggle. Um, you know, I read about him coming over from, uh, from Puerto Rico and breaking into the leagues when, uh, when African-Americans, and uh, he wasn't African-American, though, he was just black, uh, were, were trying to get into the league and, uh, and demonstrate that they could participate. I read about his struggles there. I read about his character. I read about his success playing baseball. I read about his 3,000th hit in his last at bat. I read about how he died bringing medical and food aid to Nicaragua because they had suffered a, uh, a massive earthquake and there was a humanitarian need and he shipped over humanitarian aid and it was plundered and stolen. And so he decided he was gonna ride on the airplane to make sure that nobody stole the next load and that plane crashed. And so if you don't know the story of Roberto Clemente, that's why the MLB has the Roberto Clemente Humanitarian Award. And, and, so, and so I knew he was the greatest, right? Also, I, I just loved his swing and kind of a big leg kick. And you could watch the thing. It was awesome. It was fun. I tried to be like Roberto Clemente. But, you know, depending on what era you're from, if you're thinking about the greatest of all time, maybe you think Babe Ruth, the great Bambino. Come on, you've seen Sandlot. The Sultan of Swat, the Sultan of Swat. Maybe you think, the great Bambino is the greatest, and uh, if anybody else is on your list, then, uh, then you're wrong. 
It's either Clemente or the Great Bambino. Simple as that. Maybe um, you have a, a preference of the greatest of all time, and, and you're thinking about other things. You're like, oh, when I think of the greatest of all time, I think basketball. And some of you would say Michael Jordan was the greatest of all time, and you'd be right. You'd be right. And every other conversation is irrelevant because he certainly is the greatest of all time, and it's not close. There's going to be a theme here. If you've lost three or more championships, you can't be in the greatest of all time conversation. <coughs> Bron, <coughs> Brady, um, you're just not in. Maybe in the era when you grew up, boxing was the, was the thing where the conversation was the greatest. Come on, somebody. He was happy to tell you he was the greatest of all time. He left no doubt in anybody's mind. In my lifetime, Tyson was the scariest guy alive, but I recognize and respect that no one in history was better than this man. And come on, the most important, greatest of all time conversation, besides Jesus, is Joe Montana. Come on now. It's not close. There's no conversation to be had. There's not one that's important or relevant. You can't lose three championships and get in my conversation greatest of all time period we actually played the game of football back then where you could hit the quarterback so come on come on <laughs> uh, so we have conversations in our in our regular culture and lives about who's the greatest of all time and what does it mean to be the greatest of all time and let me just ask you a question when I ask this question what comes to your mind what does it mean to be great what does it mean to be great come on you can shout me down a little bit. What comes to your mind when you think of what it means to be great? Stand out. Yeah, to stand out. What else? Yeah, kindness. That's awesome. What else? Helpful. Helpful. Yeah. Who? You've never talked this much in church. I'm having fun here. Let's go. <laughs> Wake up. Poke somebody. Say, you can talk to the pastor in church. It's all right. What does it mean to be great? Persevere. Yeah. Yeah, you look up to. He's part of the conversation. You think about him often. That's good. What else? What does it mean to be great? Hard work. work. Yes. Someone that puts the time in. Maybe you had a greatest teacher. Maybe you have a greatest superhero or someone from a TV show that's your, the greatest TV show conversation. And there's characteristics that are built around those things that make them great. Maybe it's someone who's in charge, who has authority. When the pressure's on, they're the one that carries the ball. They don't try to throw it at the goal. They carry the ball. I'll just let that sink in for my Seattle fans. It'll come back. It'll come back. We're having fun talking sports here, but we'll move on. It's interesting because this conversation happens in church world, and it's been happening for all of church world. People want to know also who's the greatest in church world. Now, we all agree Jesus is at the top, but then who? Who should we listen to? Who's greater? It was happening in the early church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. But it was happening even before that, as the disciples were marching around and having conversations with Jesus. People wanted to know what makes someone the greatest and who is really, truly great. I was trying to illustrate one of the ways that we decide who is, uh, is really great. And I got a whiteboard over here. It's kind of far away. But I just want to, maybe one of the ways to show you who's great. Can, can you help me, Jake, just bring this a little bit closer so I don't, it's going to fall if I try to do it and hold the microphone. Maybe just bring it right here so that everyone can kind of be in the, in the party. That would be awesome. Perfect. Right there's good. Thank you, Jake. Thanks for being awesome. Yeah. All right. If I ever need a Vanna White for anything, 
you're my, you're my one, right? Maybe, we, uh, maybe when we think... <laughs> maybe when we think of like who's the greatest, we think of who has the most responsibility, who's in charge. One of the ways to maybe illustrate that is, is like this. Maybe this will be familiar for you, right? You do like um, a, uh, an org chart. You guys know those are, right? And you kind of got like levels of greatness here, right? I don't make very good. I'm not an artist. I should have had someone who could make squares do this, Right? Yeah, right, right? And then it comes down like this even, right? And there's like another line, and then there's a bunch of them down here. Right, and these are the guys that are not great. Right, it's like different levels of great. This is the guy that gets the coffee for the great guy. And then this is the guy that like, yeah, buys him lunch. Trying to be, right? But like, like we recognize up here at the top of the food chain, right, this guy's great. Right, and then these are like the ambassadors of greatness, and then these are the guys that have to make sure that this guy feels great. Right, that's like a typical org chart. Right, how that kind of works, and we recognize that. Like, this is the guy that gets the company credit card, and this is the guy that has to like uh, uh, get expenses approved, and this is the guy that, that doesn't even get to turn in receipts. Right, right. You've been you've been in that that kind of organization, maybe, or something like that, or you know, maybe you know. Here's the thing, though. This also happens like in your neighborhood, right? This is the this is the head of the HOA. No? All right. You guys don't like that, that illustration? But we see these things like this is a normal kind of a organizational leadership chart. And if it gets into like our, our areas of, of faith and in the church, then we all recognize who sits up here. Jesus, right? He gets this spot. Like that's undisputed, greatest of all time, champion. Like, we, you know, we're not worthy. We get it, right? And then who's in this lane is kind of the conversation that we're going to have today. And it's the same conversation that was happening in kind of the final days of Jesus' life as he's walking towards this destiny that he has with the cross. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in John chapter 11, and then I'm going to jump over to Mark chapter 9. And uh, you can follow. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Um, you can get your phones out if that's what you use to look at the word of God. I, I'll, I'll not assume that you're, you know, tweeting or whatever it is that you do. You can have your technology out. That's totally fine. And, uh, and I love this conversation that we get into with Jesus. And I, I got to give you a little bit of the narrative so that you know what's happening in, in the story at this point. Because Jesus is on this journey towards the cross. And uh, before he does that, in John chapter 10, he has this incredible conversation about being the good shepherd. And then he, uh, he detours and he goes to where John the Baptist was baptizing because there were still crowds that would gather there as a significant place, even though John the Baptist has passed at this point. And he teaches with them and, and uh, kind of, gathers them together as part of, uh, uh, part of the ministry that he's doing. And then he moves from there because he gets news in John chapter 11 that a family that's been an influential, important family in his ministry is suffering uh, uh, from having someone be sick and almost near death. And that guy's name is Lazarus. And if you're a church person at all, you've probably heard the name Lazarus before. And uh, so you know a little bit of the story, so I won't go all the way into it. But he gets word that Lazarus is sick. And so he moves uh, towards this town of Bethany, which isn't a town of very much account. It's just a small town. But Lazarus is a big name in a small town. He's influential and their family's influential. And, and so he finds out that Lazarus is sick. And uh, Mary and Martha have been good friends and supporters of the ministry. So they send word to Jesus saying, hey, would you come and help out because Lazarus is really sick and it's not looking good. And Jesus tarries a little bit. And it's a strange kind of narrative of uh, expecting Jesus to move the moment that we feel something urgent has happened and the frustration that we feel when Jesus doesn't move the moment. Like, you know, sometimes we think, oh yeah, you're up here, but we should be able to just make a phone call. And then you come down and do any of the things that we want right when we want you to do it. Come on, church. So Jesus illustrates this insane point that maybe he's actually in 
charge and he doesn't leave right away and Lazarus dies. And there's an emotional kind of reunion. And uh, if you look into the word of God, you see that Lazarus not only dies, he's embalmed and put into the tomb and about four days have passed. And Jesus says, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, have a conversation. Lazarus isn't dead. I'm gonna go ahead and call him out. And they're like, nah, bro, that's not how this works. Like if you had come four days ago, you could have done that thing you do and you know maybe healed him or something cool like that. But we're past that point now. The King James Version says it the best, and I love to just say it in church. It says, uh, he stinketh, <laughs> right? They're in the desert. He's a dead body in the desert for four days. He's in a tomb, so it's a little bit cooler, but it's not AC in there. They bring spices as part of their routine for their, you know, their embalming thing, but it's been four days. At the four-day mark, he stinketh, and they're not down with that. And so Jesus, being Jesus, reminds them of his spot on the org chart and says, uh, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus gets up, takes off the burial garments, and comes out. Now, this is a very big deal. This would be a big deal today. This is a big deal then. This is a big deal in history. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite messages about that is just how important it is that Jesus was specific and said, Lazarus, come out, because he has all authority on heaven and earth. And if he had just said, come out, that whole tomb might have emptied, and it would have been like zombie apocalypse that we're all afraid of. But, but uh, he calls out specifically Lazarus. He's like, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out, and it's crazy, and there's celebration. And then you got to recognize what this does culturally. These people were believing in Jesus, not just on faith. Come on now. They had evidence to look at. They had been in Lazarus's funeral. He was popular and influential in town, and the family was popular and influential in town. And they showed up for the funeral, and they knew he was in the tomb, and he stunketh. And he shows up, and now they're talking to him, and they're having conversations with him. I, you can read the story, but you may miss the incredible importance of what has actually happened here. Lazarus, after four days in the tomb, is out. So this is what's happening in the story up until this point. And now something changes culturally. Bethany, from a not very significant town, becomes a cultural attraction. People want to come see Lazarus. They hear the story. This guy was dead for four days and he's alive now. People start swarming. Word spreads. And, you know, you can imagine the way that word spreads. We have, like, social media, so we can, we can spread word really fast. If word has to spread, like, by telephone, by, like, not actual telephone, but, like, I told you, then you tell someone. Imagine how the story changes from person to person. He's been dead for months. He's been dead for years. He was rotten. His eyeballs were on the ground. I mean, you know, I'm sure some storytellers got involved. I would have gotten involved. I would have made the story a little better, right? And so, so eventually this storm of, 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 uh, of community excitement happens. And the local people are there and people from around are near. And everyone who wants to get close to Lazarus, as a matter of fact, later on it says that they actually wanted to kill Lazarus because he was so popular. I was like, it didn't work the first time, but okay. So in John chapter 11, verse 45, I just want you to catch what's happening here. It says, uh, after all this has happened, it says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had to seen what Jesus did and believed in him. Remember, they're mourning and there's friends there and they're gathering with them. And they see Jesus do this and they believe in him. I'm just telling you, if the guy raises himself or anyone else from the dead and it's clear and true and real, just go with what they say. 
These guys no longer need faith. They are talking to Lazarus. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There's always snitches. Come on now. <laughs> right? There's snitches. There's some of them that are like, oh, no, you didn't. We're going to tell on you. How dare you raise someone from the dead and be awesome and popular. We're going to go tell the cops. We're going to tell dad. What drives that behavior? Is it fear? Is it jealousy? Just a perennial in our soul desire to snitch. I'm not sure what it is. I just know they see Jesus do a miracle. They see Lazarus raised from the dead. And their response is, we got to go tell on him. That shouldn't be doing this. This is unusual. He doesn't have permission to do this. How often? Come on now. They go to the church people. How often do the church people have a hard time when God does something amazing? They're like, oh, okay, that's a whole other thing. Verse 47, it says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. So they got all the religious officials together and they're like, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man who's performing many signs. They're like, we're not doing any of this. We're not doing any of the things that he's doing. What are we accomplishing? Verse 48, if we let him, come on now. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then here's the fear. Then the Roman nation will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You gotta remember, there are conquered people living under Roman rule, but they have worked out a deal because of Rome's uh, relationship with Herod and Herod's ability to kind of negotiate and uh, kind, of, kind of manage to negotiate with Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. When that didn't go well, he manages to negotiate with Octavius. Octavius is now dead, and he's still kept a great relationship, kind of working with the, with the empire of Rome, and basically said, if you just let us worship at our temple, and believe our religion, we'll serve and pay taxes, and it will, we, we won't cause you any grief. And Rome's been okay with this. They're conquering them, but they're allowing them to kind of remain in their culture. And because they've allowed that, even though they're conquered, this particular group still has a lot of power and authority. They're conquered, but they still are in charge of everybody. And if this guy gets too popular, here's what they're afraid will happen. Rome's gonna come in and say, we don't like big popular guys showing up because that leads to uprising. That leads to rebellion. And if there's uprising and a rebellion in this little community of Jews, we'll just come in, kill them all, knock over their stinking temple and not deal with that because we're Rome. As a matter of fact, eventually on the other side of Easter, we'll have a conversation about that. But it's about another 40 years later from this moment that Rome does exactly that. What's amazing about that, just historically, is they come in and they knock over the temple and they loot it and it's AD 70, they burn it down, they try to disperse all the Jews, they take all of the wealth that has, uh, Herod has reaccumulated uh, in there and they take all that. You know what they use it for? This is just cool historian, historical fact. They use that to set up the Colosseum. It's just kind of cool, right? All that, all that wealth from there. And they set it up because, you know, Rome's starting to fall apart and they want the gladiator games to come back and, you know, Nero burns everything down, supposedly. Anyways, all that's going on in this time. And so they're frustrated because they can see the writing on the wall. This is what might happen to us if this goes down. It's a big deal and a real threat. If you jump down to verse 53, it says, so from that day on. Oh, so they have a conversation and their conversation goes like this. Rome's gonna kill him if he gets too popular. So why don't we just kill him? And that will save us all the headache of getting Rome involved. Come on, how many of you know, even church people sometimes can go crazy when they feel like their stuff's threatened and make a decision they would never make until suddenly their power, their authority, the thing they love the most is threatened and then suddenly the worst comes out. And they're like, let's just kill this guy. 
verse 53, it says, from that day forward, they plotted to take his life. Now, this is why this is so important. It says, because therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Up until this point, it's crowds. It's, you know, I mean, this guy is celebrity status. There's a level of celebrity here that we can't really even fathom. When you're feeding people, supernaturally, healing people supernaturally. There are going to be crowds that are gathered. I was trying to think of this level of celebrity, and I know he's been in the news, so it's a bad example, but it's the best one I could think of. I remember hearing a a story about Michael Jackson, and he wanted to experience what it was like to be a a normal person at a grocery store. Have you heard this? So he, I don't think he bought the grocery store. He just paid to shut the entire grocery store down. Then he paid actors to come in and pretend like they were grocery shopping so that he could walk down the aisles of a grocery store and just interact with people like he was a normal person. Because it had gotten to the point where the mania around him and the fanatics and the people who all want to be close and be near him, it was so oppressive, he could not do any ordinary things that people do. And this is what it's kind of gotten like around Jesus. It's crazy. There's crowds and they're pressing him and he has to get out on boats and get out in the middle of the water so they don't swarm around him. And, you know, he's got to supernaturally move through the crowd sometimes. And at some points, the disciples are probably just around him like 12 deep and just, boom, knocking people over. And remember, that's a woman with the issue of blood comes in and touches him. He's like, someone touch me. And he's like, they're like, you're kidding me, right? We're trying to make a wall and get you through here. Yes, someone might touch you from time to time, right? That's the, the life that they're living at this moment. But from this point on, Jesus realizes something changes, And he withdraws into kind of quieter places and he brings the disciples with him and he gets outside of the crowd because he understands that there's a plot now to take his life and he has an appointment with eternity and he doesn't want it to get messed up by these crowds. So things change. And it's almost time for the Jewish Passover, verse 55. And many have gone up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremony cleansing before the Passover. And so Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem because he wants to celebrate Passover there. But he's no longer in the wave of the crowd. He's kind of withdrawn from those things. And now I'm going to pick up the story in Mark. And because all three of the Gospels tell the story, I'm going to tell the rest of the story from Mark's version. I just wanted you to get where we were at in history from John. And so chapter 9, verse 30 of, of Mark, there's a smaller group now. And they're having conversations. And it says they left that place and they passed through Galilee. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were. We know why now. Verse 31, because he was teaching his disciples and he said to them, now listen, he's starting to warn them of what's about to happen. He knows that they're plotting to kill him already. And he knows he has an appointment with death. And so he's trying to teach his disciples. And he's saying, listen, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And it says, but they didn't understand what he meant. And they were afraid to ask him about it. We're not up here. Boss is talking crazy. Just look away. Don't make eye contact. Nod and smile. Nod and smile. Boss is talking crazy. Okay. Yes, boss. Sure, boss. Whatever you say, boss. Then afterwards, they're like, did you know what he's talking about in three days? I don't know what he's talking about. Just go with it, right? Okay. That's what's happening. He's warning them about Easter, but they don't understand it. Verse 33, it says, when they came to Capernaum, they're going through these towns on their way to Jerusalem. It says, when he was in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you arguing about on the road? Now, I don't know about you, but I have this conversation in my life regularly because I have children. And there's many times I walk into a room and I'm like, hey, what are we arguing about here? He touched my thing. He took my thing. I saw it first. I wanted it last. I needed this, right? And then the argument starts up and you go, hey, I don't care. I didn't actually want to know what you were arguing about. I just want you to stop arguing. That's not Jesus' move. That's my move. 
But he says, what were you arguing about on the road? And it says verse 34 again, but they kept quiet. Earlier, they didn't ask him any questions because they didn't understand. Now they don't want to talk because they're embarrassed about what they were fighting about. It says they kept quiet because on the road they had argued about what? Who was the greatest? So they're out now. Jesus has kind of shrunk down the group. He sent everyone else away. They're the 12, the original guys. And they're like, we must be pretty special. We still get to hang out with Jesus. We're headed towards Jerusalem finally. It's Passover. There's going to be a big celebration, a big party going on. We probably should figure out who's the greatest. To which Peter would have said, yeah, I'm the oldest. I talk the most. Judah, Judas might have said, well, I have the cash. I control that. John would have been like, um, beloved. <laughs> beloved. Right? Thomas would have been like, he answers all my silly questions. He's patient with me. On and on through the crowd. They're arguing about it. It's hilarious. I think sometimes we think Jesus asks us questions because he needs the answer. I think Jesus asks the question because we need the answer. We're the ones that need the answer. So he asks a specific question, what are you arguing about? And they don't answer. And so he gives the answer because they need it, not because he needs it. And he says, um, where am I at here? Uh, verse 30, 31, 30, where am I at? 35, thank you. Sitting down, Jesus <laughs> called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. To which they would have said, yeah, the boss is crazy again, <laughs> right? He's crazy talking again. Anyone who wants to be first must be last? That's absurd. That doesn't make any sense at all. And the servant of all? No, I don't think that's the thing. You can fast forward a little bit. He talks about children. And then verse 38, he says, they were, John pipes in, in the same conversation. He's like, teacher, uh, we saw someone who was driving out demons in your name. And we were like, nah, you're not one of us. I paraphrase, that's a mic version. They're like, nah, we're the special group. We're the ones who get access to Jesus, right? And so we told him, don't you dare. You're not one of us. And then Jesus says, don't stop him. For anyone who does a miracle in my name cannot in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever's not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. He says something here critically important. He goes, hey, you're worried about the org chart. Our salary scale here is the same, all the way down. Every single soul on the chart gets their reward, gets their reward. Every single soul on the chart is getting their reward. And then he says, I want you to understand something. Anyone who gives a cup of water in my name, who serves in my name, he goes, I'm trying to teach you. You had a question about greatness, and the answer is that service is an exercise of greatness. And these folks that you see out there who are serving, who are giving a cup of cold water, who are praying for people who are oppressed, who are laying their hands, who are doing life with people who are committed to other people. He says that thing they're doing is great. And don't worry where you think they belong on the org chart. They're doing that in my name. They're accomplishing what I, my heart is for the life of other people and they're serving. That is greatness. The disciples are like, yeah, we totally understand now. That's not what happens. If you turn the page, next scene, same conversation. I'll pick up at verse 32 just because of time. They're continuing along, and this tension hasn't been resolved yet, this who's great tension. They're struggling with this still. Jesus, you just let anyone heal 
They let anyone pray for someone and demons flee. You let anyone bring someone a cup of cold water and, 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 and treat them and consider that great. Aren't we special? Didn't we leave everything behind, our fishing business, our tax business, and we're serving you? And like, there's gotta be somehow a system that lets us know who's the goat. I mean, we get it, you're the goat, but like, who's the next goat? And I'm in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, and I'm just kind of rushing ahead here because I want you to understand the closure of this conversation. It says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus, and he was leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And, and they see this tension of what's going on. They're moving towards it. And he says, he took the 12 aside, and he told them again what was going to happen to them. He's trying to have one conversation. They keep having another. He's trying to tell them, hey, listen, we're heading to Jerusalem, and some bad stuff's going to happen. It's important that you get it because it's going to freak you out. And when it freaks you out, I want you to remember that we had this conversation and that my father's still in control. Come on now. And God's still on the throne. And I want you to recognize what's going to happen. That's not the conversation they're interested in. Have you ever have a conversation with somebody and you know the thing about something else? You're like, listen, this is really important. And they're like, yeah, but I'm trying to tell you about this thing. You're like, no, 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 stop. This is really important. They're like, yeah, but I want to know about this. You know, you're like, who won the game? I'm like, I don't care who won the game. I got to tell you what happened in my life. And they're like, wait, but tell me who won the game. You're like, dude, I don't know who won the game, but let's, right? You're trying to have an important conversation. They're having a less important conversation. These guys are stuck. So verse 33, they're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And he's like, listen, the son of man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and then they'll hand him over to the Gentiles, which would have been the Roman army at that point, right? Now listen to verse 34, it says, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, three days later he will rise. This is big talk from the, from the head, right? I had to think about flog, because flog is such a weird word, we don't think about flog. But let me give you a picture of what flogging is, because you just have to understand. In, in the Roman culture, he says, they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. So this is how the Romans did flogging, okay? They took what was called a cat of nine tails, which was a whip that had barbed spike things on the end of it. And they swung it at your bare back. And then it would whip you, and the force of that would whip your back, but it had barbs in it. So it would dig into your flesh, and then the rip back would be the thing that was just brutal. And I won't get any more into it than that. I just want you to have a picture of Jesus saying, this is what's about to happen to me. I'm gonna be handed over. They're gonna spit on me. They're gonna mock me. They're gonna brutally assault and beat me. And then they're going to kill me. And I'm gonna be in the grave. I'm gonna be dead. We're almost to Jerusalem and this is what's going on. And three days later, I'm gonna rise. Then, look at the next verse. Then, in response to that statement, immediately after is the implication of the text here. Then, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and were like, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is the very next thing. Jesus is like, they're gonna tear my flesh from my skin. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna come back in three days. And then James and John come to him and they do this, this hilarious thing that I, you've experienced as parents. We've all done this before, right? So, so listen, I'm gonna ask you for something, but I want you to say yes, right? I'm gonna ask you for something. I'm gonna tell you what it is, but look at me. I want you to say yes. Whatever it is I'm about to ask you, say yes, right? Jesus is like, okay. <laughs> all right, I just told you they're gonna beat the tar out of me, spit on me, mock me, kill me. I'm going to come back three days. And James and John, I love James and John. At one point, Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. 
They're just like, you know, you know I, I, I'm raising boys. I get it. Sometimes they're just like no thought. They're just like, ah, you know, there's a wall. They just put their head down and go and hope that there's a hole when they get there. If not, it'll be a hole in their head, right? It's just sometimes they're not thinking. These are the th- sons of thunder. They're James and John, and they, they have a thought. They're like, Jesus is talking right now, but the moment he stops talking, we're gonna jump in and ask for something, <laughs> right? That's what's happening here. And he says, when we ask you this, we want you to do whatever we ask. Jesus is no fool, verse 36, he goes, so what do you want me to do for you? Not, yes, I'll do whatever you want. What do you want me to do for you? Listen to their reply. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. They are still having the same conversation of who gets to be the greatest. In these uh, kind of, uh, the picture you have to understand in a, in a hierarchy, in a kingdom like this, the two most important significance, if Jesus is at the top and is the king, the person who sits on his right hand is his most trusted advisor, his closest person, the person who is next in line authority-wise, and left is just right behind that. And so Jesus is having a conversation about what's gonna happen to come. And they're like, hey, listen, whatever happens next, this is really important. So whatever to what you're saying right now, but listen, say yes to this, Jesus. Can one of us sit on the right and the other one on the left? And I'm whispering for a reason because the rest of the disciples don't hear this. They don't, they're, not, they're not privy to this conversation. They pull kind of Jesus aside and they say this. And then Jesus answers them. He goes, listen, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup or drink uh, the drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? He's like, you were listening about the spitting and the mocking and the flogging and the death, right? Like, is it, you understand that when you say you want to be on my right and my left hand, that puts you in proximity for this thing to happen. And they're like, we can. If we get to be on the left and right, yes to whatever else you're saying, because it's usually metaphors, parable. I don't, we don't know what you're talking about. We just want to be on the left and the right. Can we have the cool spots? You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Jesus says, you don't know what you're saying, but you are gonna suffer. You are gonna pay the price for following me. He's foreshadowing the death that they ultimately will have and many of the disciples died very violent deaths. Verse 40 goes, but to sit at the right hand or left, that's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. He said, God's in control and there's a plan and trying to manipulate your way into power and authority is not the way it works in our kingdom. That's not how that works at all. I was struck by the fact that usually the person who's desperate for power and authority is the person who's least deserving of it. And we recognize that when we're serving under leaders who operate from this paradigm of I have to have the power and authority in the final call that they're usually not great leaders. And they, they demand that positional respect and they don't give that respect. Usually the person desperate for that is the least deserving of it. <laughs> we start at a very young age. I've been watching a lot of eight-year-old YMCA basketball lately. It's an exercise in stress and frustration and learning to hold my tongue so I don't end up on the news as your pastor. <laughs> so I'm learning. Even from an early age, those that demand respect and demand are some, oftentimes the least deserving of it. It's usually the quiet, humble one that you really want to reward and give honor to. Just saying. Doesn't change from eight years old to 80 years old. Verse 41. 
everyone else catches on to what's happening in the room. And this is hilarious. It says when the 10, it's the only time you hear about the 10, right? It's always the 12. Sometimes it's the 11 for a minute. But now it's the 10 because James and John have uh, tried to work out a deal here. And now there's 10 on the outside looking in. It says when the 10 heard about this, they became what? Indignant. Someone show me what indignant likes. Give me your best indignant look. Show me what indignant looks like, right? Yeah, you can scowl at me, right? What do you think about when you think of indignant? I was trying to figure out indignant. Like, what level of angry is indignant? And I was looking up the word, and there's like, in the, in the Greek word, it, there's like an excessive connotation to it. In English, it's like a, a personal affront. And indignant is like, are you serious? Are you kidding me? I've been personally and deeply offended by your behavior. I'm now indignant. There's a, there's a level there. It doesn't say they're angry. It says they were indignant. There is a personal attack and affront. You know why? Because they were arguing about this just down the road. They had this fight and this conversation of who was the greatest. And the, the answer to it was Jesus said some mumbo jumbo. And they had to just eat it. And they weren't allowed to have the fight. The servant of all, whatever. Right? Imagine the indignant nature of seeing that after that conversation, when Jesus is having this, you know, another one of these seemingly crazy conversations about flesh getting ripped off and raised from the third day, that the two of them go up and go, okay, so we didn't, we didn't ask for greatest per se. We just said right and left, like first greatest, second greatest. And the rest of the disciples are ticked. Like, are you kidding me? Jesus has got to clean this heart attitude up because he doesn't have much time with them left. And look at how he cleans it up, and we're almost done here. He cleans it up in this beautiful way. He calls them all together. He takes them. They're not the two and the ten anymore. They're together. And he says, you know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles? He's talking about Rome and non-believers. He goes, they lord it over them. They put their boot on the neck of people who they're in charge of. And they're high officials. They exercise authority over them. He's like, they put the screws on them. They put weight on them. Listen to these next words. For our church, this is important. For your family, this is important. For your life following Jesus, this is important. 1043, he goes, not so with you. And he takes the idea of greatness and he flips it. He flips it. He says, you've been trained your whole life that this is what greatness looks like. This is Rome, this is the soldiers, and this is us, we're stuck down here. This is, you know, whatever the most powerful, this is the enforcers of the power, and these are the, you know, people who just get overpowered. And he says, that's not how our kingdom works. Not so with you. And then I don't know if I can do this. Stuck on that thing. Power. Sometimes a little power is the answer. And he says, in our kingdom, it goes like this. He's like, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Now, guys, these guys were used to servants. Matthew was rich. He had servants. Servants are people you pay to do what you want them to do. They don't have a vote or a choice. They take an income and they just do what you want. And I can imagine the indignity of them saying, we're over here under you doing all of this. And if you say being great must be a servant, servants aren't great. And then he goes a step further and he goes, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Slave of all? Are you kidding me? They knew slavery. 
Slaves were in the back of the back of the back of the line. And Jesus looks them in the eye and he goes, you've confused what it means to be great because you're thinking the way the world thinks. And you've programmed your brain that great means everyone else exists to serve you and carry out your whims and make the things you want happen. And in our kingdom, greatness is when you take your strength and you give it to someone weaker than you so that they can become stronger. Then you've demonstrated greatness in our kingdom. Woo! Minds are getting blown. And then he ends with this point. He goes, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you're a memorizer or an underliner, that's the thing you can memorize and underline because it would help you in your tension in your life when you're feeling cheated and ripped off and frustrated to remember that Jesus set up a system where he didn't even demand to get his way that he thought the highest, greatest honor was to give his strength away. To give his strength away. And so this journey of following Jesus takes a massive turn for these guys. Up until this point, there's been a sense of, man, we're pretty special because we're gonna get authority and Jesus is going to be lifted up on high. He's like a celebrity. We can't even go into public anymore because we're the guys that are next to Jesus. You know, at some point they're getting Jesus' autograph and pretty soon they're like, you're with Jesus all the time. Let me get your autograph, right? And we're getting more and more excitedly treated like royalty. And Jesus is like, stop thinking that that's what this is about, that this was about elevating your position to greatness. This was about from the beginning giving you the strength to give away and that we lead from this position. I'm gonna fast forward the scene for just a moment because Jesus does end up in Jerusalem and we'll talk more about this as we get closer to Easter and he does celebrate Passover and you'll remember the scene that happens at Passover because it's confusing to them. They go into the upper room and they're sitting there waiting to eat and Jesus notices that their feet are all dirty. And because positionally it's a servant or a slave's job, someone who's paid or forced to clean feet, none of them want to take that position. So they just all kind of walk in. No one wants to take the lesser spot and make sure that everybody's okay. So Jesus gets up, disrobes his outer robe, puts a towel around his waist. Come on now. And he goes to start washing feet. See, top of the org charts taking the bottom position. And they become indignant at this. Peter's like, you can't wash my feet. That's not how the org chart works. I'm trying to get that right hand position. Come on now. And it doesn't work if you shift underneath me. And Jesus says, unless I do this, you're not gonna have any part of me. And then Jesus, Peter's like, wash my whole self over reaction. And he's like, no, no, no. Just allow me to serve you. And I can imagine Think about how long it must have taken to watch, wash 12 sets of feet by hand. We never talk about that. There had to be a long, drawn out, uncomfortable time period where these guys all had time to think about, I could have done this and now the master's doing this. And Jesus does it. And at the end, he's very clear. He just says, hey, 
He says, uh, do you understand what I've done for you? It's John 13. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord teacher, have washed your feet, you should also do this for one another. I've set you an example. You should do as I've done. And I'm telling you, no servant is greater than his master or a messenger sent than one who sent him. Now that you do these, know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. What is he saying? He's saying, you live this out now, and you'll watch that from this position, the blessing and provision that I pour out on your life will change everything. After that, he's going to take the bread and the cup like we're about to do, and he's going to tell them, I want you to remember. I want you to remember that this is the, the things I've done for you. And they don't even have a full picture of the cross yet. They still can't even get it. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new promise uh, that I'm, I'm establishing for you, that you're going to have access to the Heavenly Father. But every time you do this, you take communion, you take the bread, and you take the cup. The point of it is remembering these things I've taught you. Remember. I've just washed feet. Come on now. And I've demonstrated what it means to be great. He says, I want you to remember that servant leadership is true greatness. Servant leadership is true greatness. So we're going to sing, and, uh, and the elements are going to come. Just pass it around, and you can hold that cup and that bread, and then we're going to take this together, and we're going to remember, okay? And you can, as you get the elements, you can stand as you're comfortable. Jesus, thanks for setting us an example, just teaching us that greatness as we follow you is not defined by how much power we acquire. You trust us with power so that we can demonstrate your goodness here on earth by helping others and serving others. And I'm just struck by this crazy paradox that the greatest power and demonstration of power we can ever have is having a heart to serve and you demonstrated that. You took all the power and authority of heaven and you disrobed and you put a towel around your waist and you washed feet in all humility, showing us that that's what it looked like. You saw folks that weren't even connected to you except tangen tangently. And they were handing out cups of cold water and you said, that's greatness. And they were praying for people and you're like, that's greatness. They're never gonna lose their reward. And you just brought honor to this thing that happens when we serve and give our strength away and help and bless others. And I pray in this body, we never lose sight of that. No matter how much strength you bring into the room, you all, we always recognize it's so that, come on now, we can demonstrate your heart and attitudes towards, attitudes towards those who don't have that strength. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, we remember what you've done. Would you take the bread and eat and then drink? Thanks, God, for flipping it upside down and setting up a new covenant in a new way. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated.